Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, John! Hey, Asher, I assume this is a busy week for you. Well, the truth is, it's busy from a Passover point of view. It's not so busy from my job of fighting anti-Semitism and defending the sanctity. I don't know how to put it, the sanctity of the Holocaust. So the last two weeks, there was a speaker who came into the school in Bloomfield Hills, very Jewish school, public school, and started berating Israel in the middle of a DEI session. And that traumatize everyone so the whole thing blew up there that require trauma counselors well we're we're working on all that yeah they required a lot of venting actually it was funny venting from both the jewish side but then the muslim side who felt that they're being silenced and canceled it's calming down at that school but that was took a lot of time and then this uh, christina caramo uh put a picture from the Holocaust up of the rings that were taken from victims at, in, in the gas chambers and said, this is like, first they took the guns, then they took the rings. Or before they took the rings, they took the guns away. So trying to say that, you know, safe storage laws are would lead to another Holocaust, something like that. So Right. Yeah. I think we met, we talked about that last time. You know, I'm just I hate to say this in a way, I'm just sick of talking about anti-Semitism. I just want to talk about just being Jewish. Yeah, let's be a little bit more positive. Now, I realize I work for the AJC, you know, one of my organizations (laughs) puts out a survey, the ADL puts out another survey, the FBI wants to put out a survey, and then their survey has to be corrected. And now we have another campaign by Bob Kraft's organization, Foundation to Fight Anti-Semitism. Israel is booming with tourists. I just spoke to a friend who returned, a non-Jewish friend who returned from a trip. He said it was amazing. It was wonderful. He wasn't afraid of anything. He was in the middle of one of the rallies and it was like, you know, grandparents saying, oh, you know, it was all, you know, there's so much negativity in this world and there is such a great story to tell. Now, I don't want to be naive. I don't want to be living in Weimar in the 20s, saying everything's going to be okay. Hey, that's uh, my line. <laughs> no, my favorite scene from the protest, to your point about optimism, is that, no surprise, Chabad put themselves between the protesters and the counter-protesters and were asking people whether they had put on tefillin that day. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. So yeah. on brand for them. God bless them. God bless them. They're, they'll go anywhere. That's great. And, you know, so look, there are dangers. And actually there was in Greece, we just read about there was almost a Chabad. It also was almost bombed or attacked Israel and the Greek authorities stopped some terrorists. But yeah, so it is a scary world, but let's talk about positive things. My week this week, I think helping Rachel in the kitchen and clean up and everything that's going to be much more positive. I don't know. Actually, sometimes the anti-Semitism work is easier <laughs> than cleaning. Well, the stuff. other thing, I mean, th- don't forget, we're about to talk about a holiday whose very 
core is 400 years of anti-Semitism of us being slaves in Egypt. So we can't get away from it even when we talk about holidays. Yeah, but we have a good time doing it. We sing some songs and uh, take a different attitude towards slavery, you know. All right, so let, let's talk because we have a few lead-up things before we get to the Seder. Last week, we talked about the nature of Hametz. I don't know if we got into a deep dive on this, but because the Jews left Egypt in a hurry, we didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so that's the symbolism of the matzah. And so one of the things that we do in the lead-up to Pesach is that we scour our house to the best of our abilities to wipe out any chametz, try to find it in our cars if it exists there. But then there's a special ceremony that you do at the end. Describe that process. Well, right. You have to actually search for the chametz because you might have put it somewhere. It's like a check, bidikat. Leave dok is to check. So you have to check for chametz. And the Talmud says you have to use a candle. Now, now I don't recommend a candle. Now, my Rebbe, Rebbe Aaron Soloveitchik said, use a flashlight, flashlight, flashlight. And people have used candles and have burnt their houses down because, you know, they want to search under, you know, the drapes. And so please, if you want to use a candle, you know, walk around the house a little bit, you know, march around the house with the kids. But use a flashlight it's better what's with the feather yeah so i i grew up with we grew up with we turn the lights off we search with a candle my mother would put out 10 crumbs of hummets and it's a very solemn kind of walking around with a wooden spoon and the feather it's just i think symbolizes kind of like a broom you know on this one i'm very pragmatic like keep the lights on use a flashlight just look around dustbusters are fine yeah yes and instead of a feather but you know the only thing is a feather is gentle because you want to take the chametz that you discover that you find whether you put out crumbs or don't all the chametz that you might find you're this during this check you're supposed to bundle up and that, again, is why the wooden spoon, because it's you're going to burn it the next morning. And wow. that, remember, at Anshi Shalom, we would have a burnathon. We'd have a big barrel in the back. And hopefully people wouldn't use too much plastic. Plastic is not good. And it would smell up the whole neighborhood. And if we left the shul, back shul door open, the whole shul would smell up like fire. But... <laughs> And then, and then the next step is you have to sell your chametz. And here, here's where we get into a legal contract, right? About selling our chametz because we don't necessarily want to dump out all our great scotch. Yeah, that's you know, it's, it's so funny. I saw someone wrote like, "Well, why sell chametz? Just give away, you know, what's cookies and stuff." Well. I'm not, I have some scotch I'm not giving away. You know, scotch, uh, so, as, kind, uh, as kind of a man as you are. Exactly. Um, right. I don't know if it would be very generous giving it away anyway, but, but yeah, so, so, but it really was because of Jews were trading in, in spirits that they had to find a way of, I guess, Passover, not getting in the way of their livelihood. So we did find a way. And the idea is you're not allowed to own any chametz, any leavening that scotch or whiskeys over, over the holiday. You're not allowed to own it yourself. But if you sell it to a non-Jew and you have to rent the space 
where that chametz is. So like the cabinet with the scotch is that area is rented to a Gentile, then you're not owning it. It's not yours. And you're not looking at your chametz and it's all totally fine. So go to your nearest rabbi to make sure that it works because if it doesn't work, you're in big trouble. But but it's a valid sale. And, and I, on my form, I ask people, give me a phone number of someone. If you're going to be out of town, I need a phone number of someone who has access to your house. So if the non-Jew who owns it wants is wants to booze up, then they'll <laughs> boo, they'll they'll open your house. Now the problem is they have to pay. Then after Pesach, right when Pesach is over, the person who sells the chametz, let's say the rabbi, has to go to the gentile and say, "Hey, do you really want to buy it now? It's going to be a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars." and Inevitably, I'll say the Gentile says, "No, no, no, I, I don't want to, and I'm giving it back." So, <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Have you ever interacted directly with one of the guys on the other side of those contracts? For me, it's always been you send it to the synagogue. You you have no idea who's on the other side. Have you ever directly dealt with yeah. the, the non-Jew on the other side of those contracts? Yeah, it, it, with it, the CRC with Rev. Gedalia Dove Schwartz, we used to do it, and with the caretaker, and now in Detroit, I do it with. With another rabbi, and he's doing most of the work, but with the custodian of, of the synagogue. So, yeah, see, it really happened. And they, you does know, he, does he think that we're nuts? Well, you, he gets $10 for this and another $10 for that. They, they do very well. So they're, they're well. No, I think, you know what? There's so many crazy things in Judaism that this is just one of those. But, John, I'll tell you that I heard that some of the Amish will not drive their own cars, you know, or whatever, electric stuff. But if it's owned by a Gentile, meaning a non-Amish, right. some people will use it. So they, those Amish, the Jews and the Amish, we have a lot in common. Lansman, Lansman, like they said in the movie, right? Right, right. <laughs> but, but you know, I think that there is, I've always thought that there is actually something very beautiful about the how this idea of selling chametz because being dependent on the non-Jews around you, because in, even when they were, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they would take stuff. God says, I want you to take some stuff from the Egyptians. You know, you've worked so hard, you were slaves, you get something, some rep. So the idea really is we always have a dependency and I think there's a, it's a beautiful idea that here is a Gentiles helping us out. The problem is some that has been discovered occasionally that the Gentiles not really a Gentile, the Gentiles really a Jew. And that, that, that could be a problem, but it's rare. And, and there've also been issues speaking of the name of our podcast with distilleries that were owned by Jews and the extent to which maybe haven't sold their chametz and whether or not you could drink that scotch in subsequent months. Yeah, somehow no one talks about that anymore. I remember <laughs> like all the bourbons and this was a problem and this and that. And I don't know, suddenly I don't hear about that anymore. So just enjoy and don't tell anybody. But you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll chalk that up to don't ask, don't tell. All right, let's talk Seder time. I think one of the biggest questions that you've helped resolve, especially when folks have young kids, is you're not supposed to start the Seder until after sundown, which these days, now that we've changed the clock, can be very, very late. And so you had a very elegant solution to that. Tell everyone what it is. 
So and and actually, it's not even sundown; it's still dusk. So it's like even half an hour after sundown. Right. So very late. So to back to two ways. One is just do a kitty seder if you have really young kids. Just do a kitty seder. And, you know, don't eat any matzah yourself because you're not allowed to eat matzah on the day before Pesach. But like do it at like six o'clock, seven o'clock. That's even before sunset. And, you know, do a little bit of the, well, we'll talk about the different rituals, the different things, a little bit of grape juice, a little bit of karpas, which is a vegetable dipped in salt water. Do some of the things, let the kids eat some matzah. So just have a fun, sing man, ishtana, halal, you know, do those kind of fun things. Get it all done. Enjoy. The kids will have a great time. And then, you know, go to your regular Seder at, you know, when it's late, when it's the right time. The other way of doing it, if you have like slightly older kids and meaning older kids in their 20s and 30s and 40s and, <laughs> or in their 80s and 90s, you know, so start a little bit early, start before the regulation time. But what I'm saying, start is do a lot of the songs and a lot of the fun songs that come at the end. You know, all those songs and that kind of stuff. Back end it, do it in the beginning. Because anyway, you know, when it's midnight or 1230 a.m. and then you want to sing all your songs at the end, everyone's tired anyway. So put it in the beginning, and those are not a requirement of the Seder. They're sort of beautiful, nice songs. No problem with doing a lot of that stuff before the regulation time. And then, boom, you're ready, say Kiddush, and things move along much faster. Well, speaking of moving things faster, you have in the past advised me on which parts of the Haggadah, which is the book that we use as we walk through the Seder, that there are parts you've allowed me to skip. Yeah, absolutely. It should be. And I also take cues from Aaron Soloveitchik because someone I remember asked him, he had a, a group of Russians or former Soviet Union people. You know, they never had a Seder. And they came and they came to this guy's Seder and he was going like till midnight. They didn't even eat till midnight. And they, <laughs> They, they left before the meal. They what's going on? They're so, like, we're going back to Russia. Right, exactly, right. The food was bad, but at least we <laughs> ate it right away. <laughs> so the idea is really just to give a lot of the, the the texts are not don't have to be all read. They are just to give the flavor of we were slaves in Egypt and God took us out of Egypt and it was terrible and God of the mighty end. So just the basic ideas of explaining the Seder. That's really the requirements, plus the four cups of wine. So there's, or grape juice. The key thing is to really get meaning and to have discussions and to understand what it means to be enslaved, what it means to be free, the beauty of our tradition, of God's involvement in our lives, all those kind of things. So yeah, definitely, you don't have to say every word of the Seder, though we had a wonderful man who used to, Bert Levinson of blessed memory, yeah. and he would come to our Seder. And while we were discussing and arguing about the four children and this and that, he would be saying every word of the Seder. So that's also good, you know, just if you want to say every word, but you really don't have to. The idea is really to get meaning of the Seder. Out of the city. To help people get through, you, you also said that it's fine for people to eat little snacky foods along the way, right? You don't have to necessarily stick with the prescribed foods in the beginning only. 
Right. Well, so it's interesting that the Seder always, we always think, oh gosh, we got to go through an hour, two hours or whatever till we get to eat. No, 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 no. Right at the beginning of the Seder, first of all, you have a cup of wine at the beginning of the Seder. Good start. <laughs> it could be grape juice. Don't worry. It could be grape juice. And then, and then right away, pretty much right away, you have carpas, which is dipping a fruit in salt water. The reason for carpas is just to make the children ask questions, really. It's you know, it's, it's the spring holiday and salt water, the tears, but it's really just to do something crazy. But a that- A vegetable, right? Vegetable and salt water. Yeah, what did I say? Did I say- It's a fruit. Uh, no, right, thank you. A vegetable and salt water. <laughs> and something that you say, berate, you know what, John, this is, you remember people are always, no, it's really a fruit. It's really a fruit. A lot of these things that we think are vegetables are really fruits. Something that grows in the ground. So fruit or vegetable, something grows in the ground. So you make a bare prihadamam. That the reason you make this blessing that God creates the fruit of the ground is because it'll help you later on when we eat the bitter herbs, which also grow in the ground. But in any case, once you, and this is at the beginning of the Seder, it's like five minutes into the Seder. Once you start with that vegetable, that thing that grows in the ground. Yep. You can eat anything that is covered by that same blessing, like potato chips, French fries, crudite, whatever you want. Not whatever you <laughs> want, but a lot of things you want. So right. no one has to go hungry at the Seder. And I I have pickles. I find I love, you know, I'm eating the whole time when, when we're talking. I remember as a kid, always starving and so hungry and definitely not good. I'm not into that. I'm into, uh, you know, eating. <laughs> and and drinking, right? So the, the the cups of wine, we're supposed to drink them relatively quickly, right? You're supposed to be leaning to your left side as if you're some kind of royalty. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, part of it is to get a little of the not quite drunkenness, but the little high you get from drinking wine fast is actually part of the experience, right? Uh, yeah. I, again, if you want to do grape juice, you can do grape juice, but yeah. It, <laughs> I have found that I, yeah, wine is a little, makes it a little fun. It's good. Enjoy it. It's a holiday. You're really supposed to enjoy this wonderful holiday and you're supposed to have a sense of freedom. It's not supposed to be like I'm chained to this Seder and I can't get out. It's got to be like, this is an expression of freedom. So yeah, enjoy. And you know, you don't need to have the biggest cups, but you're supposed to have a cup should be about three, at least three point oh ounces and so that's like half a, a little little less than half a cup and uh, you're supposed to drink about half of that so you know you should serious drinking and you know i i wanted to say one of the things that i love about the seder is in general it's around one table you know even as big a crowd as you have and, and if you have to have several tables you can have that but what a great concept that in today's polarized society, we can all come together at a Seder. And that's part of the theme of the four sons or the four children, that even the Russia, the wicked one, is at the Seder. And so everyone's together. And, you know, I think this similar thing where, where Muslims are celebrating Ramadan at iftars, when they break bread at the end of the day for the, the, the fast is over at night, at sunset, actually, for Muslims. The idea is everyone comes together. And I was at a, actually, I was in iftar tonight. I could have the fruit. There wasn't really a fruit I could eat, but I could have the fruit. 
And I don't want to mention any names, but there was some very interesting characters there that I normally would not break bread with. So they um, have a prescribed meal after eating yeah. the bread. Yeah, well, it starts with a a date and water. It was so great. There's such a because it today sunset at least in their calculations was uh, seven fifty seven. So the imam was talking at like seven fifty five, seven fifty six, seven fifty seven, and people were starting to eat. And I felt it was like on Yom Kippur, like. Right. Awesome. keeps going the canter goes after the time get him out of here <laughs> it's like showtime at the apollo right just pull him off the stage <laughs> so he did finish but people had their dates and and water and then they have a nice middle eastern kind of meal but so the idea really is that I, the seder should be about bringing diverse people to this one table and everyone could be together and we really don't have to be this split as we normally are. And that's why, you know, at the beginning of the Seder, there's halachmania, you make a phrase that everyone come to our Seder. Now, of course, we say it with the door closed and at the table (laughs) with only our invited guests there. But theoretically, it's supposed to really invite everyone to the Seder, anyone who's hungry, spiritual or physically hungry, you know, come, come to the Seder. That's great. All right. So let's hit the Seder plate real quick before we go into the Seder itself. So on the plate, you've got maror, right? You've got bitter herbs. Now, I remember as a kid, we we used to eat it out of the uh, the jar, but I think the, the, the right way to do it, right, is to have freshly grated horseradish. Either grated or chopped from a real horseradish. You get it in the store. It grows in the store. <laughs> if you get the real root, it's a root. And you'll see it's a primitive looking root. And uh, yeah, and then that's much more sharp. And I wouldn't say it's really bitter, but it's just like overpowering. Yeah, we used to have contests to see, you know, how many you could stack up and watch people's faces turn beet red. Yeah, I don't think anyone has died from that. I mean, you imagine that someone's got to, but I don't think anyone's died from having too much maro or too fast. But be careful and be ready to leave some of the wine over or grape juice, <laughs> eat some of it if it's too spicy. And then, but you know, John, I mean, it's not cheating, but a lot of people have romaine lettuce for maror, which counts just as much. And in fact, I thought those were two separate things. You had maror. Well, right. So sometimes on some of the Seder plates, you have the maror for eating plain and then you have the other maror maybe romaine lettuce for using in the sandwich in the hello sandwich which is a combination of matzah and maror and used to be the paschal lamb we don't have that anymore but you know you should feel free what i do is because you're supposed to eat an olive's worth of these things and to eat an olive's worth worth of horseradish not (laughs) a jar really the chopped or the grated Right. So I have a combination of a stalk or two of romaine lettuce, carefully washed, and, and it's kind of bitter, romaine lettuce, and the maror. So you're not cheating because you're having them of that real horseradish, but then the romaine lettuce to get the, the volume. Got it. I, I've always thought about opening my own Hillel sandwich store one of these days. That's one been one of my dreams. You know... Uh, I don't think it's taken off. I don't think it's taken off. And and don't give up your law career. <laughs> right. All right. So then we have everyone's favorite haroset. 
right? This this mix of fruits and sometimes nuts and to remind us of the mortar that the Jewish slaves used to make maybe the pyramids or whatever we built over there. Right, the city. Now, isn't that interesting that the the thing that represents like the our slavery and making the, the mortar and, and building and, you know, is like sweet, happy, haroset, woohoo, love haroset, <laughs> give me more haroset. Uh, and I think it's an important attitude, this attitude to be bitter. It's totally understandable to be bitter and angry and, and depressed with slavery and, and totally get it. But um, it's, you know, the great, the resilience of the Jewish people has been that we have been overall, I think, a pretty positive attitude, positive looking, forward looking people and not letting this slavery, even the slavery in Egypt, really slow us down. I find that a lot in the Black community as well. Like they have incredible ability to cope with so much sadness and suffering and to have have joy. But so that's why I love that, that the Haro said, even though it, it really it represents the the slavery and then and slaving away, building the whatever they were building, like you said, it's sweet and yummy and fun and give me more of it. Yeah, and as you know, I'm a big fan of the ancient Stoics, and they have this expression, amor fati, which is love the fate. So it's not just you accept tough times and and whatever. You love, you no, know, it's like it's it's the fire that that keeps you going. No matter what comes your way, you're going to love the fate. So one of these days, we need to write that book on Stoicism and Judaism, but uh, stay tuned on that. Yeah, I just heard from at a dinner this week that Bill Davidson of the Davidson Foundation of the, the Pistons, the bad boys. So Bill Davidson, had, you said a story about a, a, in the depression, an insurance salesman, you know, and he would go door to door trying to sell insurance. Of course, no one, they would slam the door in his face. And every time they slammed the door in his face, he would say, great. Now, now let me figure out why it's great. But it's great. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot of it attitude and smiling. And, uh, and it's not everything. But, but you know, we were talking about in the beginning, John, about not obsessing with anti-Semitism. Again, we got to be vigilant. We got to be on the lookout. We got to make sure Americans realize that anti-Semitism is an American problem. It's not just a Jewish problem. And at the same time, you got to focus on the positive and on the really good things. So I think, yeah, I that is it. a huge way. Yeah, I love it. All right. I think we have three left. We've got carpas, which you talked about earlier, which is not the bitter herbs, but a separate vegetable. That's the one we dip in salt water, which reminds us of either the tears or walking through the red or reed sea, depending on, I guess, how people interpret that, right? So really, yeah, and that would be, that's interesting, salt water. Now, there are those a little rebellious and radical that don't, that say just the Talmud doesn't talk about salt water, just talks about dipping. So they will have something like maybe strawberries, if it's a vegetarian Seder, strawberries dipped in whipped cream or, you know, a fondue. Let's do a fondue. Let's go back to Why this. am I only hearing about this now? I'm 52 <laughs> years old and now you tell me I don't have to use salt water? No, you don't. And and but you know, if you're having meat at the Seder, what are you gonna have? You know, fake whipped cream or something? I don't know. So we've never done, we've never gone in that direction. But you know, again, the Talmud just says dipping, dipping a vegetable, dipping okay, something. So you food. could use hummus. 
Yes, or, yes. Or is that and, chicken? Key. Yeah, that yeah, no, but but uh, yeah, it was a trick question. There we go. Darn it. But you can dip it in, you know, ketchup. You can have French fries and ketchup. Yeah, That's there you go. It, you know, and and it's the holiday, so you can do and heat things up really easily and all that. So it's not like the Shabbat that it's tougher to heat things up. So okay, uh, next is a zaroa, which is an egg. No, 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 no. Beitza is an egg. There you go. Yeah. Beitza is the egg. So it reminds us of the Korban Chagiga, the, the festival sacrifice. Yeah. In the yeah, temple. Yeah, right. And the egg also represents, it's interesting, the cycle of life. You know, why an egg? Because, um, well, give you two things. One thing is that the night of Passover in the Jewish calendar so this year, it's Wednesday night, will be the night of Tisha B'Av, of the saddest day of the year, of the ninth of Av, the destruction of the temple. So some say that the two of those are connected. The egg represents the food of mourning. And that might be because, you know, we're so excited that we have freedom, but we don't, It's the, we're not living in the messianic era. So there's a little bit of sadness. So the egg is kind of interesting that it, uh, yes, it does. And, and even John, like with your explanation, that it was the wonderful sacrifice that was offered so we can get a little bit more meat because uh, the Paschal lamb might not be enough meat, but we don't have that offering anymore. So it sort of reminds us of a little bit of mourning for the temple and mourning that we don't have full peace, though I hope it's a peaceful time. I hope we get into next into Passover and things are peaceful in Israel and peaceful in America and all that. But yes. And then the last one, John? Was a zero with the one I mentioned earlier? That that's yeah. really people usually find a bone somewhere at the butcher <laughs> shop. It's you know the 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 hand of God or something like that. Yeah, right? exactly. But also, but also the the specific Pesach sacrifice offered in the temple. Yeah, exactly. That was the Paschal land. And then now, so we don't so some people get a shank bone, but usually I don't know, we use turkey necks, a neck, some kind of bone. And, you know, if you don't want to the, the, it just has to be something roasted. So according to the Talmud. So if you want to, if you're a vegetarian, which is great, then there's no shame in that. So if you're a vegetarian, you can use a beet. That's sort of the replacement. I don't want to say traditionally, but that's sort of become the popular replacement for the the meat zero, the meat shank bone, or the neck, or whatever, or the leg, but use you can use a beet. Okay. Now, I can't imagine what a roasted beet would taste like. I, I hate beets in any oh, form, much less a roasted one. Oh, there! I love beets and roasted. They're good. Beets are. John, you should try it again. I don't know. Maybe not bored. Like for every Jewish holiday, you know, like the grocery store will bring out the. The borscht and the shav. I, I have no <laughs> idea what shav is. It looks like grass, but they, they think we eat that crap for every holiday. It's just not true. It's true. I remember so in Jewel, remember when the in Lakeview and the Jewel started carrying a lot of kosher food. It was so exciting. And we were trying to help them, you know, real, you know, what what do Jews eat? <laughs> so they <laughs> Shav is, yeah, horrible. But, and borscht, the only way borscht really tastes good is when you dump in a bunch of cream cheese, sour cream. Oh, so, God. You know, it, but no, but roasted 
there it's okay. Now there are some Haggadahs you'll see that have matzahs on the Seder plate. Mm-hmm. And though I now the Seder plates I've seen don't have room for matzah, but also there are old ones that used to have some of the salt water even on the Seder plate. So the idea of the Seder plate in some ways is um, it's your toolbox. It's your toolbox. So you have yep. your maro, you have your bitter herbs, you have your karpas, you have your harosid, you have not everything. You don't eat the egg and you don't eat the zroa, the, the shank bone, but all the other things you eat off of the Seder plate. So it's kind of your toolbox for this great Seder. All right. Well, let's jump in. Let's do a speed round of the Seder. You know, we'll, we'll go real quick. Hadesh. Sanctifying the day. This is an amazing day. It's a holiday. Urchatz. Kind of confusing everyone by washing your hands, but not everyone has to wash their hands and there's no blessing for it. And it's really only because you're going to do dipping and we don't even wash normally before we dip, but it's to shake things up a little bit. And there's some spiritual uncleanliness around dipping that we need to get our hands clean, something yeah, like that. Yeah, because, right, it, things only can become spiritually defiled or, you know, whatever. Tame, if they're come in contact with water or a, a liquid. So the dipping would make them vulnerable to defilement. Okay, yachatz. So that's breaking the matzah. And that represents, the, you break the middle matzah. That represents really that that our ma, it starts out as a whole matzah. Our world is broken. Our world is broken. And you put aside, well, we'll keep going. I guess we'll have... Yeah, no, I think we take the the larger piece, and that's the afikoman. What's the afikoman? Yeah, that's going to be hidden for the end of the meal. It's going to represent when we, we're going to eat a little bit of matzah, at, like for dessert. Afikoman might mean dessert. We're going to eat a little bit of matzah, and that's going to represent the eating the Paschal lamb, symbolize that. And sort of has messianic to- tones that we hide the afikoman like the Messiah is is hidden is you know when will they'll be revealed and when the Messiah will come and this is the Afikoman of course is the exciting time when kids either I don't know how we do you did in your home John like either the kids steal this piece of matzah and hide it and you have to find it or you the adults I guess hide it and the kids have to find it yeah, we took the latter approach. I, I I've never seen anyone do the former approach, but I guess I in it, Israel, in Israel, the kids stealing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Got to teach them young. <laughs> All right, then we get the maggot. This is that crazy long part in the middle. Where oh, wait, wait, you the- missed you missed karpas, but right after orchats came karpas. Oh, I thought I mentioned karpas. I'm sorry. Oh, well, we we talked a lot about it before. So kadesh orchats karpas. After you wash your hands, you have the karpas. Start right. eating, start munching and all these different things, breaking the matzah, right. Breaking the matzah, Magid is the story, including the, the famous four questions. Oh my, the four questions, the four sons. There's a lot of four things that we, we do, four cups of wine, you know, it's a lot of fours that we have and, uh, you know, classic stuff. <laughs> and it's kind of weird that we... We ask the four questions, but they don't get really answered right away. You, yeah, you, you know, my and my judo always says they're not really four questions. It's like, how amazing this night is, how different this night is that we do this and we do that. It's not a question. Not saying madua nishtana, why is this night? It says, manishtana, how different is this night? 
anyway, they're kind of like four questions. Yeah, it's, you know, theoretically, you don't need these four questions. The idea is just to stimulate conversation. So, yeah. And and what's most fascinating to me about the Haggadah is Moses isn't really mentioned. Yeah, there's one place where he's mentioned as part of a verse, Vayosha. Yeah, but you, you feel bad for the guy. Like, he had a big role to play in this whole story. Moses is a great facilitator. Moses wants us to know that God's in charge. I'll step aside. And this is the, the story of God and the Jewish people. And uh, it's hinted at Moses is called a malach, an angel or messenger. But yeah, it's really the story about the relationship of the Jewish people and God. And, you know, I think Moses wants this to endure. And it's not just about him and his life. It's about 3,500 years of history that from Exodus from Egypt. Okay, and then Raksa, we wash the hands a second time. This now, time, this is the real, right, this is with a blessing. This is for, because we're going to have not bread, we're going to have matzah, and traditionally you wash your hands because the priests used to wash their hands before they ate truma, they ate their tithes. So that's a tradition to wash before bread or matzah. So we wash. By the way, this is like things slow down here. Like, you know, I, you know, it's, it takes half an hour for everyone to wash and go to the sink and all that. So first of all, try to speed them up. And second of all, you can go, or you can do, do lie, lie, lie. That makes it go faster. Well, pro tip, you know, always have more than one washing basin so that people don't have to wait, especially if you have like we have 35 people, you know, have more than one. So you're not waiting a half hour for it to go around. Excellent. Good. Good thinking. Good. Plan. All right. And so we do mozi matzah. So we do the blessings over both. Then we eat the maror. Right. And then but we never eat it. We usually wrap it, like you said, in the romaine lettuce. Just and then yeah. Yeah, and then we do combinations with the matzah. This is your store, the Hillel. The Hillel sandwich store, the Korech, right? The eating with a sandwich made of matzah and maror, and then. Uh, by the way, Rabbi Dolinger of Rhode Island says that you know the pointed out that the matzah we have now, this hard matzah, was uh, wasn't always that way. It was really designed to last, so it doesn't mold, which it doesn't. We've use matzahs from previous years <laughs> but the, what they had before that like even in the 18th 17th century were much softer like more like pita or lafa yep. so then you think about the hillel sandwich which has san maror and, and haroset you know the sweet haroset that could be kind of yummy that could be good and a lafa one of our fellow congregants is is french and he brings matzah from France that that has that consistency. I'm I'm always hesitant to eat it. I'm not quite sure. It just doesn't feel kosher or Pesach. It actually tastes good. And sometimes there's some flavoring involved, some orange <laughs> and other flavors. Oh, it wow. just tastes too darn good to be kosher for Pesach, but it's fantastic. <laughs> good. Yeah. All right. So then serve the holiday meal. It could be just about anything, but you have to stay away from roasted meat, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't have just roasted because that roast, even roasted chicken or any of that remind if it's just roasted like rotisserie that reminds you it looks too much like the paschal lamb 
And we don't have the Paschal lamb anymore. So we, we avoid that. And a lot of times people start this meal with an egg dipped in water. That's really the egg that sort of represents the cycle of life and rebirth. And we're not going to get into Christology here with the, you know, with Jesus and the egg and rebirth and Easter, Easter egg. We're going to stay yep. right away from that. But uh, it's always deal, like they say, right? What's that? Lahav deal. Yes, but but Lahavdil meaning it's very different, but it's very interesting to see traditions overlapping. And the truth is, this was the birth of our nation, the Jewish nation. So an egg is totally appropriate to, to have like this is the birth of the Jewish people. So it is a, totally appropriate for the Seder. And I like it because you get some, you know, eat, something to eat right away. I mean... <laughs> All yeah, right, and then the, the meal's done. Then, then at that point, we eat the afikoman. That's supposed to be the last thing, tafun. That's the last thing we right. eat. Yeah, it's supposed to have a taste of that matzah in your mouth. And look, if you can't find the afikoman, and it has happened before, you know, someone steals and that kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, the, the kids don't tell you. The kids go to sleep and they don't tell you where they hit the matzah, vice versa. Right. Whatever. Don't worry. Take another piece of matzah, eat it and bench and say the Birkat Amazon. And that's right. Remember, one cup was on Kiddush. The yep. other cup of wine was on this discussion, Magid. The third cup of wine is on the benching, Birkat Amazon, because in the old days, they would always say Birkat Amazon, grace after meals, with a cup of wine or a cup of a fine drink. Yep. And then and then at some point, then we have Hallel, the reciting of the Hallel, which we do in synagogue during holidays. And we, we do it here as well. And then that's when we drink the fourth cup. Right around that time, we have this weird Elijah thing where we open wow. the door and the stuff we say doesn't resonate so well with some people about pouring out your wrath. So I had a nice little vort, little thing that, that it's a two-way thing. We open the door to welcome the world, to welcome Elijah, but we want to welcome the world. We're not afraid of the world around us. We're not afraid of secular studies we're not afraid of the culture we welcome all the benefits of the world around and the people in the world and at the same time we don't forget about that there is hatred and anti-semitism so we say the shfochamadcha which is sort of verses from from psalms that are kind of very nasty against the enemies of the jewish people so we do say we're not wimpy you know being open to the outside world is not wimpy so we open it up, the door, we're not afraid. This is Leo Shimurim, there's a night, which is a God, we say God protects us. We open the door, welcome the world, but let the anti-Semites know we're not going to let them off the hook. And then finally, Lashana Haba'ah Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem, Nirzah. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And then, then come a bunch of songs. So I, I have a rabbi in my synagogue that says that, you know, wait a second, we say near it, so we say the Seder's over. It's over, baby. But, <laughs> it's not, but it's not over. It's never over. And then learning Torah, learning about our tradition and about Exodus from Egypt and all about the wonderful things of Judaism is never over. So I kind of like that there's spillover. But again, a lot of these beautiful songs you can say before the Seder starts and really give yourself some time to do that. Got it. Any pro tips for the what you've done in the Lopatin Seder that other people can take away? 
But we do, we always do introductions at our Shabbat. So for the Seder, sometimes between each little section, we do three introductions. So people say, you know, my name, where I'm from, what I do, and who I would like to invite to my Seder. That's a good question. Or Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, or it's something like that. And or a favorite Passover memory, you can say that a favorite Passover. So so, but we divide it up. So each time you get three people, you know, giving their introduction. So if you have you have thirty people, John, thirty five, <laughs> maybe four people. But you know, there are eight. What are ten parts of the seder? So you'll get it done. Oh, the other thing is Rachel Assange. We go around. People read different parts. English, Hebrew it doesn't matter. And for the end songs. Rachel assigns who knows one, I know one, and who knows two, who knows three, who knows four. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Like, who knows, you know, 13. Does it go up to it goes up to 13? Yeah, 13. You know, so and then people forget. And then the same thing with the animals in Had Gadya. So that wonderful song again, giving people the different animals. And I must say that Bert Levinson of Blessed Memory, this older member of our synagogue. Um, he was always the, the the one kid, the goat. God, God, he would go, bad, bad. <laughs> so it's really, it's a great memory. He came to every Seder we did in Chicago, and uh, we're really blessed with his presence. Yeah, and I, I loved attending yours the, the few times that I had that opportunity. All good stuff. It's fun. Well, well, John, as we wrap up, what are your thoughts about Pesach? Well, we, what we like to do is in the middle of the Seder, anyone at any point can either yell song. And we, of course, have a songbook of cheesy Passover songs, you know, take, take me out to the ball game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sung to all sorts of Passover tunes that are really corny and cheesy, but awesome. Or someone can yell a joke. And of course, we have the big book of Jewish jokes and I always pull off a bunch of Henny Youngman jokes from the Internet. So at any point, someone can throw out one of those. Or can You're tell us only story. 52. You're only 52. <laughs> yeah, but we've got some people who are, you know, 30 years more than that. And so the Henny Youngman jokes sit perfectly with them. Some of them don't quite have the same resonance now than they probably did when they were first <laughs> scribed. All good stuff. You know, everyone knows coming in, I give them trigger alerts that this is not going to be the most politically correct Seder of all time. And then the other great thing we do is for Dayenu, once we've done the original song, then everybody has to speak the words in English, but as quickly as possible, like an auctioneer. Oh, wow. so, and, and so you can imagine how tripped up people get, because we, we use the, um, the Maxwell House Haggadah, which is awesome in a couple of ways. One, it's free, which is great. And I think the, the genesis of it is that Mm -hmm. that they wanted to ensure that coffee was deemed to be kosh for Pesach. They got a rabbinical opinion. And I think in connection with that, they handed out free free Haggadahs along right. with it. So yeah. we, to this day, even though when I was a kid, I used the, the famous red and yellow ones, you know, now we use this one. And the, the thing that's so great, not so great about it is the English. It's a lot of thou's. And a lot of oldie time, timey English, which is fun to see how it trips up people. Well, yeah. And, and the truth is some people buy a different Haggadah each year. There is an illustrated Haggadah. There's the, there's the, a lot of illustrated. 
but there's Jordan Gorfinkel has one that's sort of the comic book Haggadah. I mean, there are so many Haggadahs. It's a great bestseller. There's the Harry Potter Haggadah. There's everything. Yeah, I think, and my, I'm a, Gotta give a shout out to my father-in-law who writes a lot of those corny songs. Like, yeah, yeah. So this is uh, you're gonna have to send me those. Oh yeah, well, we're happy to send them your way. One more uh, thing that we should probably tackle before we sign off is at the end of the second Seder night, we start doing this weird thing called counting the Omer. Yeah. Well, that's a, a tradition that Torah talks about that you have to count. It gets you from Passover, from the holiday of freedom, all the way 49 days. And on the 50th day is Shavuot, Pentecost, the festival of weeks, is the holiday of receiving the Torah. So we were starting on this journey. The first night, enjoy freedom, that's it. But <laughs> come the second night, you know, you got to start thinking about Torah and responsibility and, you know, earning the right to be free. Well, not earning the right to be free, but using your freedom for a good cause. So, yeah, so it's a little strange in the diaspora to start counting on the second night because we're kind of pretending that the second night, the first night, anyway, we do it. So why not to forget the count on the first night? It's a little sad because once you forget, it's, it's difficult to get back on the counting train. The the first night of counting the Omer, which is the second night of the Pesach. Yeah. Right. Well, you can yeah, right. If you uh, you can right, go to our website and we'll we'll explain it for you if you have any questions. <laughs> and we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about Lagba Omer in the middle and then Shavuot as we get closer to that. With that, I think we've covered a lot of turf. Yeah, this is like a, a Seder, John, really, yeah. So good, we really, I hope everyone has a beautiful, happy, kosher here that's filled with, with all sorts of interesting things, interesting people, and everyone coming together to celebrate. Thanks so much. I wish we could do it together one of these days. I hope we can. That'd be great. Take care. Chag Sameach. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.